being here in our study on the book of Philippians. We're going to be in chapter 4, looking at verses 10 through 13. Just kind of a quick recap of where we've been. In the previous uh, few verses, we'll just back it all the way up to uh, verse 6. We see the consistent and the familiar verses where Paul, writing to them, says, To be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Um, how are we doing with our anxiety these past couple weeks? Um, we, we looked at months ago to not complain, and I think it's something we can always check back in on is, do I have a spirit of complaining? Am I consistently complaining? complaining? And I think uh, long ago... I'd mentioned sometimes we don't even notice we're doing it. It just becomes such a natural part of our conversation. And here with anxiety as well, we could wake up, many of us, and each day wake up anxious, and we're not even entirely sure why. Um, there's lots of reasons that we could have to be anxious, but as we saw Christ himself saying, does he not take care of the birds and the fowl of the air and the lilies continue to grow? Why then would you be concerned about these things? Uh, we see an incredible truth to not be anxious. And as we see in verse 7, the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Last week, as we took a look in verse 8 primarily and a little bit in verse 9, we saw this list of things that we are to consider, to focus, to actually dwell on, to routinely be in thought over, and to focus on those things that are true, Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, and if there be any virtue, and remember that if is a since, since there is, and if there be any praise, think on these things. It doesn't take long throughout our week to find things that happen, that come across our way, whether it's in conversation, whether it's in fellowship, whether it's music or television, any other media, books even, things that come across our way which do not necessarily line up with what we looked at last week in verse 8. It's not true, it's not honest, it's not pure, it's not lovely. Um, these are things that routinely come up in a person's life. It's not as if we get to walk around and say, hey, I'm only going to uh, be around those things which are good and true and lovely, and that's incredibly easy because I control everything that comes across me. We may not. Um, kids come into contact with all sorts of things at school, do they not? Um, I was so excited for my kids to go to school for the first time, in a way. Some of you remember what this is like. You're sending your kid off to school for the first time. You're both excited and also depressed all at the same time. It's kind of a happy uh, sadness that comes along. And then they come home and they're learning things from other kids at school, right? This was the part I was not prepared for. My kids learn things from other kids at school that I did not teach them, that I do not want them to learn or to be taught. You can't always just focus in on these things just yourself, but you can focus on how you are to consider, what things you're going to dwell on, which things you allow to keep, where you're going to spend your time and on all of these things. And here he's giving the exhortation to focus, to consider to dwell on these things. And then verse 9 was our, our check for our checklist person, where he writes, Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. 
and the peace of God shall be with you. So it's not even just enough to say, I have an idea of what it is to do. You wanted a checklist. Paul gives it to you in one simple word, do. Consider these things, dwell on these things, think on these things, and actually do it. Which gets us up to where we are here, verses 10 through 13. Paul continues writing here as he gets, gets to this closing, as he's um, discussing this joy and gospel partnership with this church, with this um, group of people that he's grown so fond of. He writes, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last of your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therefore with to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for the giving of your inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. We thank you that you've given it to us so clearly, that you've graced each and every one of us here this morning with the incredible privilege and opportunity to sit under a hearing of your word. Even just a simple reading of your word is powerful, it is authoritative, and it is truly words spoken by you. God, I pray this morning as we look at uh, just a few short, simple, and very, very sweet verses that we would truly um, seek after you, that we would allow it to grow our affection for you, and that it wouldn't be something that in its simplicity we would cast out as irrelevant, but that it's in those simple things that we often struggle the most. God, I just pray that you'd guide us and lead us throughout the rest of our time. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. familiar set of verses for many of you, and, uh, and I understand that. And this morning we're going to look at uh, a simple one word, which has caused a lot of uh, struggle for so many, and something that is, is something we're constantly wrestling with, and it's the simple word of contentment. Being content in any circumstance that we find ourselves in. Just briefly, we're going to go all the way back into chapter 1, and we're just going to kind of summarize where we've been a little bit with Philippians back in the context, because I think it's important. We remember who it is that's writing these verses. Paul is not sitting up in this palace in his mansion in an ivory tower, looking down at people, writing to those with less, and saying, hey, you need to be content with what you have because that's what God has given to you, so just deal with it and be happy as he has all the luxuries, all the joys, all the comforts that one could ever want. Where is Paul as he pens this letter? Yeah, he's in prison. He's absolutely in prison, chained to a guard 24 hours a day, rotating the guards every six hours, about two feet or so of gap between them. He is not in a great place, and if you remember Paul's history, he was either in prison, shipwrecked, or being beaten almost routinely. He did not have a lot of free time. He didn't get to go play basketball or soccer and do all these different things that I get to enjoy or that we get to do. He wasn't really out there tending to a garden all the time and just taking naps. Well, he may have slept a lot in prison, but what else is there to do, right? 
This is who is writing these words, a person who recounts how many times he was beaten, how every time he traveled to a different city, he was in great fear of persecution. He wanders around and didn't say, hey, I'm going to see what this city is about. It's constantly aware of who might be there trying to beat him, imprison him, or kill him. Is this how you guys travel from city to city? From Glenwood to Newcastle, looking around, going, oh my goodness, who's trying to kill me in Newcastle? Who's trying to kill me in Rifle? Aspen? Right, that'd be ridiculous, right? But this is the life of Paul, constantly moving, constantly traveling, constantly sharing the gospel, and people sought to kill him simply because of what it is he believed. But here he writes that he has found this, he has a secret of contentment. We can evaluate the world around us today, and we can look around and see a very discontent world, a very discontent people. Those that have very little are often discontent, just as much as those that seemingly have everything you could ever want. Unhappy. Unsatisfied. Joyless. Thankless. Some of us know those people. We've met them, and we see a person... Um, the common argument, again, obviously I'm a huge sports fan. It's the only thing I ever understand. Everything for me has to come back to sports somehow. That's how I make sense of things. But whenever something happens, whenever you see a popular or famous athlete struggling, some have said they've struggled with depression or things, they're just, they just don't seem happy. They seem unsatisfied. All of these things are going on. And the common response is, pay me millions of dollars to play a game and I'll be happy. Right? Some of, many of us have thought that. I've thought that myself is, well, I'll make $20 million to shoot a ball through a hoop. That'd be great. But how often that does not satisfy a person? How often that the next promotion, the next paycheck, the bigger and better things do not actually match up to our expectations? Contentment is something that I think if we're all being honest, we all would struggle with. And not just every month, not just every year. But daily, this morning, when you woke up and you traveled and you came to church this morning, were you content with what you had? Are we as a church body content with our building situation? Are we content with what we have here? See, these are questions that I think are, are simple, but yet I think they're very, very important to ask because one of the great dangers that we have and struggle with as fallen sinful man is this danger of envy. We always want what somebody else has. I, I remember going back to school lunches when I was in kindergarten. Um, kids would bring their lunches, and it was always a massive and enjoyable time when everyone opens up their lunchbox, right? You know, what, what does Matt have today? I mean, what does she have over there? And you, you, whoever had the snack packs, that awful pudding stuff that was delicious as a kid, that and the Rice Krispie treats that had the peanut butter chocolate on the bottom, these were high commodities in kindergarten and college. It's a weird combination. <laughs> See, you guys understand what that's like, okay? But you're looking around, and I have this, I, I would have a Rice Krispie treat. This is great. It's original. It's, it's normal. It's plain. It's still fantastic. But what's over there? Is that peanut butter and chocolate? And you're always looking around at what somebody else has. You get a new car, you love your new car, until guess what happens? You pull it into a parking lot and you see something else and you go, I wish I would have had that instead. We always want something else. We always want something better. 
And again, I always go back to this, but the story of one of the richest men in the world being asked, how much money is enough? And the response simply being, I just need one more dollar. One more is going to be enough. People construct their whole lives around just one more dollar, just one more uh, promotion, one more this and one more this. Or I'm sending my kids to this school, but man, if I could really get them here, that would solve all of my problems. Well, I live in this city, but if I could just move 10 miles this way, everything would absolutely be solved. My whole life would be dramatically different. And this was a very tough week for me internally as I'm studying through and pouring over and looking at this idea of contentment because it is not as if a pastor just simply uh, prepares a sermon, reads through, finds these truths and says, okay, now I'm just going to throw them at the people and see what happens. It first has to have a work and cause an effect on the person actually delivering this. It's not as if I get to take a cold list of, of bullet points and just say, okay, and never try to understand, never try to have any application in my own life. So I dealt all week with trying to be content, which means you're not getting off easy. For these next 20 minutes, you're going to have to consider, am I content with what I have? And Paul is going to go through this because at the very base of all of these things, a struggle with contentment, a danger of envy, is a failure to see the providence of God in your life. It's no secret that at times our lives are roller coasters, right? Not many of us have had a completely plateaued life where everything has stayed the exact same. There's ups, there's downs, and sometimes it's not just a, a nice and steady up and down. It's a dramatic thing, or maybe we feel as if we're upside down, we're going backwards, or we're being tossed all over the place on an old wooden roller coaster that's actually not up to code. That's how it feels sometimes. And so Paul here is giving this encouragement, and as he continues on with this, but notice how he starts in verse 10. As he's about to talk about contentment, notice what he does. It's the third time he does this in the book of Philippians. He starts off, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. He is now adding this emphasis of greatly in addition to rejoicing in the Lord. Remember, Philippians is so much about rejoicing in the Lord regardless of circumstance. Some of you are not happy this morning. That's circumstantial. Remember the contrast between happiness and joy. You can wake up and be very upset, not happy at all, just, man, I'm not happy about what's going on, uh, whether it was something at the house, maybe a goat kicked something over, maybe your kid made a mess all over the place. How many of you actually have goats? I just want to see who that hit. Just, <laughs> okay. Great. So hopefully, your guys' goats didn't do anything awful. You just can't trust a goat. But. but there's a great difference between happiness and joy. There are those that are happy, and that is the ebb and flow. That's the up and down, and it's largely based on how are things going in my life? Is everything going the way I want it to? Then I'm happy. If there's something I don't like, now I'm not happy anymore. I'm sad. I don't like it. Where joy should be a constant, it should be consistent, it should be steady, it should be stable, and it should ever be increasing as it is joy that only comes from God, from the work of Christ, given by the Spirit. This is a joy that supersedes and transcends any circumstance. So you're telling me Paul is rejoicing and being in prison? Absolutely he is. Is he happy he's in prison? Probably not. But he rejoices in the fact that God's providence has led him to that prison. And as we've mentioned before, he is not just chained to a guard 
the guard is chained to him just as much. Consider the perspectives and the providence of God in all of these things. And then here he continues on, that now at the last of your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Has the idea of a revived concern where it's always been there, but this concern is now just again coming into bloom. It's been revived. It's been refreshed. And he emphasizes that the Philippians had consistently had concern towards him, but they had previously lacked an opportunity to help him financially. Remember, Epaphroditus had traveled. He had given them, he had given Paul a gift that they had collected out of what they really could not afford to give either. They did far and above what they were able to give. But he received it with gladness because it was out of the, the love of their heart in which they came. They offered this gift financially to help Paul. In verses 11 and 12, he says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatever state I am, therefore with, to be content. Ask yourself that question this morning. Have you learned in whatever state you are to be content? When it's really good, are you content? Well, yeah, of course, Pastor. That's easy to be content. It's easy to be happy. It's easy to be grounded when things are going very well. When things are not going well, can you still remain content with what you have? But notice the language here. Paul isn't just saying just to be content. How is it that he came to be content? He learned it. It is not as if you're sitting in a chair, sitting in your office, sitting at home, and just simply say, okay, Lord, I'm ready to be content with all things, so go ahead and just do it. Just zap me with contentment. Man, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Oh, give me some of that. Patience, kindness, all of those different things. If it would work like that, you could just microwave a 10-second thing, a little, like a little hot pocket. Yeah. This is why I went to seminary, for these illustrations right there. But consider this. It's not as if it just happened. It's not as if Paul was just born with an incredible amount of contentment, saying, man, I have more than I need of it. He simply looks back and recounts it very clearly to them, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Which means he failed to be content over and over and over again. And I thought even just this week of how even though I was considering it, and even though I'm, I'm going through it and know that we're studying this out, I failed to be content with little things. Traffic drives everybody nuts, right? Everybody dislikes traffic. I've never met one person that says, you know what I really enjoy? Sitting in the car on the highway, not moving. Just, I love it for two hours. I love that. No one likes it. It's the worst place on earth. And, and I find myself at times just even driving behind somebody that's going a little bit under the speed limit. And I can start grumbling and complaining and not being content with the fact that my car is running. I'm getting to where I need to go. I'm absolutely safe. And by the way, I should be content that a person is driving comfortably. Because if they do not feel safe driving at a faster speed, we don't want them driving a faster speed. Like people in Nebraska drive way too fast. But this is something that is important. Even though I'm considering it and walking through this idea of being content, there's so many different situations that pop up and you can easily say, why don't I have that? 
you know, you know, God, why don't I have this? Haven't, haven't you been doing this long enough? Or haven't I done enough to be able to get this? Why does that person have something that I don't have? That's not fair. And we say that's not fair that they have something that I don't. But one of the greatest things, one of the root causes of our sin is our pride, but also how we covet other things. How many stories do we see in the Bible of a person coveting what another has? Basically, any war, any argument, any fight throughout human history is because you have something I want. And I think I'm entitled to it because I don't have enough already. But Paul, here in verse 11, says, Not that I speak in respect of want, making it clear it's not as if he's saying how thankful he is for this financial gift to help in his ministry and in what it is that he is doing because he needed it or he was lacking in it. And there's a contextual reason, a historical reason, for his clarification. Um, one of the greatest ways, and again, this is not uh, just reserved for this time, but a prominent way to improve one standing in the community was to become a benefactor to those in need. It's essentially the idea of you are in great need. I will provide for your needs. I will become a benefactor to you. And in response, you kind of owe me or you feel obligated to support me, to serve me. And you have this, the receiving party would be obligated to the giver. It's a very similar practice now, isn't it? Hey, you need something here. Let me give you this financial gift. Let me gift this to you. Do this. But now you're essentially obligated to me. This is Politics 101, right? You got, half of you guys are thinking it and smiling, so I'll just put it out there. It was, it was a means to buy honor, and Paul wanted to be very, very clear. He did not want to appear like being the, the traveling rich philosophers that would go town to town, go city to city, people group to people group, speaking and sharing all of these things, this great traveling speaker collecting money as he were to go. He wanted to make it very clear, this is not what he is doing. He is not a minister, uh, a mer mercenary type of minister, just going and traveling paychecks. And oftentimes, uh, he didn't even want any of this money as well. But he says, in whatever situation I am in, I have learned to be content. This is greatly different than this idea of being self-sufficient. A lot of us are independent. We like to be independent. We don't want to receive help. This is something that I don't ever like to do is actually ask for help. And you could largely say, well, you, because I don't want to bother anybody. That's some of it. But what do you think is a root of that? Pride, right? I just don't want to have to ask for help. And I don't want to bother them. But really, I just don't want people to know I, I might need help with something. So here he's writing this, and we're talking about sufficiency. You see, being content. This is not Paul saying, I have learned to because I'm completely sufficient in and of myself. I'm looking around saying, I don't need anything. I've got it covered. But this is much more closely related to an idea of being God-sufficient, the fact that he has given all things. And as we see later in the New Testament, given all things pertaining to life and godliness. There is no lacking. There is no wanting in Christ because what more could you want? What more could you have? A philosophy that was prevalent then, and I think a lot of people practice now, is this idea um, that the Stoics held. They were above and beyond their circumstances. They had this idea that they would be like a rock in an island, the idea that a rock never feels pain, 
and an island never rain or never cries. Well, if I can just detach myself from any human emotion, detach myself from feeling anything, if I can be a rock, nothing could ever hurt. Because if I just keep saying I don't care, then eventually when something bad happens, guess what? I'm prepared. It doesn't bother me. Is that truly what God is calling us to be and being content? Is it the idea that we're supposed to constantly say, I just don't care about things? Being content is not apathy or indifferent. Contentment is, is bowing our hearts to the will of God no matter the circumstances. Again, going back to, do you trust in the providence of God? Do you trust that he is sovereign? Do you trust that he is in control? Do you trust he is Lord sitting on the throne? Whether things are great, he's on the throne. Whether you think things are as bad as they could ever possibly be, he is still seated on the throne. Have you ever met a person that is just insanely content? Like you're just a person that no matter what happens, they kind of give you the I don't care, but it's not a they're indifferent or they're apathetic. You just look at them and genuinely they're okay with whatever the case is. They've been incredibly wronged and they're like, yeah, but you know what? It's okay. And they actually mean it. And you're this is an incredible person. It's striking because we're not supposed to be this way, right? We're supposed to want to get back at somebody. You wrong me, I wrong you. You hit first, I'll hit back even harder. That's how we live. But it's very much this exact context of verses 11 and 12 that we actually make sense of verse 13. Philippians 4.13, one of the top five most popular verses that everybody seems to know that athletes routinely are going to write on their sneakers, put it on the, under the black in their eyes. All of these things, right? It's popular. It's everywhere. People that have nothing to do with God, care anything about the Bible, whatever it is, they'll take this verse. Why? Because it sounds really good. It feels really empowering, right? That I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I used to think about this verse when I was uh, in high school and I didn't prepare for a test. Shocker for some of you. Go to take a test and you're sitting there saying, okay, I didn't study for this at all, but you know what? God could do a great work. He could cause me to answer these things correctly. I don't even know what these questions mean, but maybe God's going to do something great because you know what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I will pass this test. And then you get the test back. How do you think it went? Not very well. Brittany can attest to this. Uh, one of the AP biology tests, one of my favorite stories, I got 28% on that test. Feel free to laugh. It's okay. It's a very low percentage. Uh, People would say, if you just randomly guessed on every question, you probably could have done better. Well, here's the thing. That's what I did. <laughs> I would often ask at the beginning of test days, hey, what chapters is this over? And people would laugh and think I was kidding. No, I absolutely did not know what we were covering. And again, Brittany will absolutely affirm this. These are not good study habits for those of you that are younger. It cost me a lot of money in college by not doing scholarships, by not doing well, and I didn't learn a lot of really important things. So study well, do your tests, do all of those things, okay? But this is what I would come into it with is this idea that, okay, I don't need to prepare for anything. I don't even need to be uh, concerned. I don't need to think about things because, again, if I want to do something, this will work. Again, playing soccer, it was a simple idea of, man, well, we need to score a goal. Well, you know what? Philippians 4.13, I'm going to go get the goal. I'm going to be the hero because, after all, I can do all things through Christ. Is that really what these verses are trying to convey? 
We understand the context here from verse 10 and 11 and 12. Verse 13 is not, I can do anything that I just set my mind to. This human pursuit, this self-sufficiency of, if I just want to get it done, I'm going to get it done because I want to and I can do all of these things. But it's instead saying that by the strength of Christ, I can be calm in adversity and humble in prosperity. Think about that. When things are adverse, when things are not going very well for me, I can be content. I can be calm. You can be not anxious in these things. But then also when there are times of prosperity in your life, whether financially, relationally, spiritually, however we consider it, we can still remain humble. Depending on who we ask, one might be easier for you than the other. Some of us say, hey, I do very well in adversity. For some reason, I have the strength and I'm able to overcome that. And others say, I have a hard time being humble when things are going very well. Because when things are bad, we blame God, right? When things are really good, we credit ourselves. Man, look at this. Things are going great. I'm making a lot of great choices. Things aren't going well. God, how could you do this to me? It's not my choices that cause these problems at all. It has to have been something God did. But Christ is the one who empowers and strengthens Paul to experience this contentment. And again, we can't just uh, sit there and wait for us to be zapped. We must be moving towards him in faith. This is why in Colossians 3, Paul writes about focusing on the heavenly realities, focusing on those things that are true and that are good and that are lovely. You focus on those things it's much, much easier to be content. We learn to be content. We learn so much, don't we, in our life? Think about your spiritual journey up to this point. Where were you 10 years ago? Are you in the same place today? My hope is that many of us are saying, no, I, I'm, I've come so much further. God has continued to grow and stretch and guide and lead me and praise God for that. If the answer is, you know, I'm kind of in the same spot, that should be a concern. We're not meant to sit idly by and just sitting around, being in the same place, having the same faith, having the same understanding of who God is as we did 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Because again, have any of us attained a perfect knowledge of who God is? Have any of us attained perfection in our life? Absolutely not. Christian contentment is independent of our circumstances and grounded in our unity with Christ. I want to read um, a poem. I told Phil about this. I didn't write this, so if you don't like it, it's someone else's fault. But I think it captivates a lot of... I think it was actually written by a teenager, which makes it even more impressive. Um, but it talks a lot about contentment and the struggle that so many of us have. And I think, if we're being honest, we can read through this and we can relate in the way that we practice, the way that we live, the way we conduct ourselves, and the way that we even think about what it is that we have. It says, It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days in the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring that I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted the freedom and respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted, 
the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. I mean, that is powerful stuff there. We always want what we don't currently have. Constantly looking back, and again, even just something as simple as the changing of the seasons, when winter comes, I start complaining and saying, I don't want to deal with the snow. It's annoying. And then the snow goes away and it gets hot, and I don't like it when it's hot. I want like 50 degrees every single day. I know some of you are terrified at that thought and thinking about where your coats are right now. But I don't want it to be hot. And when it's hot, I go, man, if I could get a little winter, this would be fantastic. And as it goes through, and I love this, as a, I was a child and it was adulthood that I wanted. What child hasn't said, I can't wait until I get older because I get to choose. I get, Benji and Maddie talk to me about this all the time. Maddie constantly saying, when I'm a mommy, I'm going to, and it's all sorts of things. Some of it makes no sense. And Benji does the same thing. When, I, when I'm a dad or when I'm an adult, I'm, I get to choose when I go to bed and when I get to wake up, what I'm going to eat. These are things you fantasize about as a child, those basic things in life. And then you're 20, but it was 30 that I wanted because I'm only 20. I want to be a little bit older. I want to have more respect from people. I want to continue. It's not enough. And then you get to middle age, and then you're sitting back saying, I had wanted this, but now I want to be 20. I could run around, and things didn't hurt, and everything was is the prime of my life. Whatever the case is, the youth, the free spirit. Then I was a retired, but it was middle age that I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations because I wasn't so limited in everything that I was doing now. And then the closing line is so theologically uh, related to what we're looking at here in contentment. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. There are so many that go through life never getting what they wanted. They pursue everything financially for their whole life. They finally have more than they could ever need, want, desire. Well, now I want something else because some reason that didn't do it for me. What am I missing? You know, I feel, I feel alone, so all I need to do is I need to get married. I need to have a spouse, and then I'm really going to feel like a complete person. You get married and you realize, you know what? I'm not perfectly happy. There are still things that I want. My spouse doesn't complete me. There is still something missing. People do this all the time with relationships, with finances, with all sorts of things, but the only thing that will ever create true and lasting contentment is Christ. And how do we encourage other people when they seem discontent, when they, they don't totally seem happy, they don't seem like they have any joy, they don't really seem fulfilled, what do we say? This is usually one of the last things we get to is Christ. It's, okay, well, how's your work? How's your family? How are your kids doing? We go through all these other checklists as opposed to, well, what's your relationship with Christ? Your job may not be perfect. Guess what? You might be chained to a soldier, routinely beaten, mocked, threatened to be killed constantly. In Christ, there's joy. In Christ, contentment. In Christ, strength. Because you understand there's nothing a person can do to our earthly bodies 
They can't destroy a soul. A person may hate you. They may want to kill you because you believe in Christ. Guess what they can't do? They can't destroy your soul. Yesterday at the breakfast, uh, spoke a lot about forgiveness. We walked through forgiveness and true forgiveness being a complete cancellation of a debt and how we have been truly, completely forgiven of a lifetime of sins and eternity of punishment for those sins before a perfect and holy God. But it's not as if God just returns you to zero at the time of forgiveness of sins, at salvation. It's not as if he says, great, your sins are forgiven, you're back at zero. Because you're going to sin again, right? Then you're going to have to go back and you're going to have to continue to ask for forgiveness. You're going to have to keep going back, make another sacrifice. That was the law. It was good. You sacrifice, boom, you're back to zero. Well, guess what? By the time you walked out and there was a line or traffic in the street, you probably sinned again. Now you got to go back and offer another sacrifice because guess what? You don't match the perfect standard. We talked about a yoke or a burden this morning in the Sunday school. That is a burden. But Christ, rather than just say, great, forgiveness of sins, mercy, no punishment for those sins, then adds on top of that grace and says, not only are you eternally forgiven of sins, but how, much, how about this? What about eternal life? What about the imputation of the righteousness of Christ onto you, credited to your account? So as God looks upon you, he sees the perfect work of Christ and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Righteousness credited to you because of his atoning work, not because of anything that we've done. What a beautiful thing that is of mercy and of grace. And as we look at these things, can you be content knowing and believing in that? Are you content with, I could have a different job, I could, you know, I could have different windows or a different set of furniture in my house, or I could have a different car that starts up right away, or whatever the case may be. Are you content with knowing you have been eternally forgiven of your sins? That Christ paid that punishment. That Christ died, was buried, and resurrected on the third day, completing that work. Because when we consider that in the perspective, there is no reason we should be anxious or discontent with those things that we do have. Because it is all in the sovereignty and the providence of God that what you have now is what God has intended for you to have now. You learn contentment. Those things we struggle with now, learning, creating that work of the perseverance and the patience that we need to endure. Be content in all things, whether high or low. I can be content in all things because it is Christ who works in me. And what a beautiful truth that is. Let's pray. Gracious God, we just thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the incredible truth of your word, the incredible promise of salvation and of redemption and the atonement and the, the beautiful truth that you sent your perfect, sinless son to come into, just into our context, that he would even be God wrapped in flesh, that he would come and dwell among men, that he would live a perfect and sinless life, fulfilling all the law and the prophets, fulfilling all that was foretold perfectly, fulfilling all those areas that we fall short. We thank you that it's by his, his blood and his body and his death on the cross that he, that he didn't only die, but he did conquer sin and death, that he did take away the sins of the world and that 
those who truly do put their faith and their trust in him, who confess him as Lord, that, that repent and turn away from sins and look to God and praise him as he is and receive that salvation, that there is eternal life that is given, not because of any work and not because of those things that we have done, but simply because of all that Christ has done in his perfect sacrifice once for all time. God, we praise you that you've given us a great high priest that continues to make intercession for us, that, that mediates not only our prayers, but all that we do, and that we look forward to the day that we get to stand before you with all the saints of, of old throughout all time, being able to praise you before the throne, bowing down and praising you. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God, we can't even fathom the day. We can't even truly put into words the majesty that you possess, the glory that will be gathered around the throne there, the, the things that we will see to be able to see you face to face as we ought. God, we praise you and, and we stand in awe of the fact that all you do is call, you call us to repent and to believe and that those who put their trust in you will be saved. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us the knowledge of who you are and all that you've done. And there is nothing greater than who you are and what you've done. Lord, I ask that as we sing our closing song and as we continue to reflect upon you and your finished work and as we consider throughout this time as well as in the coming weeks this idea of being content with all that we have, we understand that it is all given by you and that we trust in your providence, we trust in your perfect wisdom, and we know that it is through our suffering and through pain that we produce patience, that you produce patience and obedience in us. And I pray for each of us that we would have the endurance, the patience, the perseverance to move beyond the circumstance and find true everlasting contentment and joy in who you are and what it is that you've offered to us. God, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.